The WojPod is brought to you by Goodyear, helping you discover the road ahead. Goodyear, more driven. Hey everyone, welcome into another edition of the WojPod. Here with Toronto Raptors coach Nick Nurse, the 2019-2020 NBA Coach of the Year, obviously the coach of the championship Raptors season in 18-19, which is largely the focus of his new book called Rapture uh, that is released this week uh, online and in bookstores. Great visit with Raptors coach Nick Nurse. You can now stream the most MLB games on DirecTV without a satellite dish. Yes, catch the clutch hits, strikeouts, grand slams, web gems with nothing on your roof. So whoever's up there, whether it's roofers, Santa, birds, old-timey chimney sweeps, moody teenagers, thrill-seeking raccoons, you name it, they won't find a satellite dish. But you will find your MLB games on DirecTV. That means DirecTV is your home for baseball this season. Root, root, root with nothing on your roof. Yes, stream your team. Call 1-800-DIRECTV or visit directtv.com. Sign up today. Claim based on total games carried on sports networks. Sports availability varies by zip code and requires choice package. Nick Nurse, the head coach of the Toronto Raptors, the NBA's coach of the year, the owner of a lengthy and pretty lucrative new contract extension, and also the author of a new book. It was released uh, this week, uh, yesterday, in fact, on Monday. Uh, it is called Rapture, 15 Teams, Four Countries, One NBA Championship, and How to Win Damn Near Anywhere by Nick Nurse and co-written with Michael Sokolov. Nick, it is great to have you here. How are you? I'm good, Woj. Always uh, great to speak with you. Thanks for taking the time and having me on. Appreciate it. Absolutely. The last time I think we talked, you were spinning around the bubble on your bike before Game 7 against the Celtics. It became I, it was a ritual for a couple coaches, you and Mike Malone, who both were involved in long series there um, and were down there a long time. Uh, on game day, I saw both of you guys just spinning around the lake and it was a way to get out of your room and about really the only thing to do outside, right? <laughs> yeah, well, it was a game day ritual. It didn't it didn't feel right to do uh, really anything else. There wasn't much else to do. I suppose you could have done some other stuff, but the bike seemed pretty close. And uh, just in case the weather turned, you could get off it and get back to your room or whatever. So it was, um, and it was nice, it was nice bikes. And it was a pretty, I had a, I had a perfect one mile loop I carved out. So I just kept going around and around that whenever I, you know, felt like, uh, you know, game day clearing the cobwebs out a little bit. Uh, Raptors advanced to the conference semifinal at game seven with Boston and uh, before uh, bowing out and obviously Boston went on to lose to Miami in uh, the the conference finals. How much of the playoffs did you watch after you left and got home, Nick? Well, not very much, Woj. I um, dabbled in the in the West a bit. I did not watch the uh, East. Mm -hmm. uh, <laughs> it was, you know, it's it's a um, it's a getting getting over it process. It really is. I mean. I mean, as you as you know, you you get up every morning all season long, and you're putting your heart and your guts and your soul into this thing, and and when it ends before you want it to, 
you know, it's it's hard to take those losses, and especially when you get down to really a seven game <clears> series that that one possession. You know, we we came with we had a shot to tie it at the end of regulation there, and that made it a close series. It was tough to go out that way. So no, I haven't I haven't watched much. Um, I did watch the finals. Uh, I was kind of over my uh, <laughs> my issues of watching basketball and and enjoyed the finals and just realized again. Uh, how hard it is for for those teams to win it. It's um, oh well, I, that 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 point really got driven home with me watching the finals. Nick, do you have a better appreciation? You've been out of the bubble for about a month now. Your season ended on September 11th. Of how difficult it was to navigate trying to advance and win in there, and all the preparation that goes into that, and the intensity that goes into that, but at the same time. There were moments and instances in the bubble where several teams, including yours, thought about, do we want to continue? Do we want to pack up and leave? And after the Jacob Blake, the shooting in Wisconsin, uh, it was a tipping point for a lot of teams. What was the balancing act like that for, for you as a head coach in that environment? Well, I think, Woj, it's been quite a balancing act since March 11th. And I think that um, the biggest thing was is is um, not to plan or not to put too rigidly <laughs> together your plans because I think there's so there was been so much changing of the directions or information or or whatever. So just, let's you know let's go back to March 11th and two weeks after that we're not playing and players want to know what's going on. Well, you're giving them as much information as you can but you don't really have very good information because that's changing day to day about what's going to happen and and I think it was similar nobody really knew what it was going to be like in the bubble right so you kind of went down there with an idea and you kind of lay out some of that stuff for them but again in any communications you were having in front of the team you were you were kind of saying hey let's be open-minded let's be positive let's look at the bright side let's let's get out of bed on the right side of the bed every day you know just just things to say, hey, it's going to be jostling. Now, now to get to your question, um, you know, when the uh, play stopped, you know, and, and we were, again, at the point of what, what's going to happen next, we were just doing our best to, to navigate through it, listen to them about why they wanted to stop and what they wanted to do, give my own opinion on what I thought, how I saw it from my shoes and how I um, – saw everything, but, but not making it a mandate. Of course, it was just more like discussions and trying to help and lead and be there, put an arm around them, give them an open forum to speak. And then uh, we'll handle the decisions as they come at us. People will remember the Bucks making the decision to boycott um, their playoff game with Orlando. And it triggered uh, a series of teams that day and, and shut the bubble down for a few days. I think perhaps lost in that was that the Raptors and Celtics were talking, um, I think within their own team. And I think a little bit within between the teams about doing that exact same thing. What do you remember about the walk-up prior to the start of your series with Boston and then the decision Milwaukee way, made? Did you, did you go to bed any of those nights wondering if your team was going to play that game one as scheduled or that there was going to be a different decision made? No, I think, I think there was uh, – we had some real serious talk about it uh, as a team. 
Woj and and um, yeah, I think it was it was in the balance about whether we were going to play or not. And I think, you know, geez, I think the Bucks Bucks decision, you know, um, obviously spearheaded the whole thing. Uh, and fo- you know, everybody kind of had to follow suit, or the league did, and figure out where we were going with this whole thing. Um, but you know, I think I think those were were serious talks, and I think there was some. Uh, you know, Brad and I were exchanging texts about what was happening and and trying to keep each other updated. And yeah, there was a real possibility that that series wasn't going to happen. Which is pretty unbelievable when you think about you're getting ready to compete against a team <laughs> and to be having those kinds of conversations. It was strange enough, I know, for people to be in the same hotel, be bumping into each other all the time in what was a heightened competitive environment, especially when you get in the playoffs it sort of just became part of part of being an NBA coach because you guys yeah. as a group, the 30 plus and some other coaches had gotten very, you know, with the coaches association and becoming very involved or, or more involved in, in the social justice issues and how the, you were going to handle it as a coaches association. Then you get to the bubble and the, the interaction among coaches is just unprecedented for a playoff environment. Yeah, it, it felt. Yeah, I, I had a I had a hard time with it, Woj. I, I gotta I gotta be honest with you. I think that there's a there's a level of uh, competitiveness kind of deep inside you that that you're that you're you're at, and and it isn't it isn't bumping into the head coach on the day of the game in the hallway and having a trying to have a nice conversation with him. You know, I mean, I didn't like I didn't like that. I didn't. I didn't like not being able to not have a nice conversation either because respect these guys. And if you bump into them, you know, you, you rarely bump into them during the course of a normal season. And when you do, you, you have very pleasant conversations with them. It was, it was uncomfortable for me. I, I think some, uh, I, I don't know. I, I would imagine a lot of the coaches felt the same way, but, but um, especially like you said, it was just too, too often. Too much, too often, too, too. Like you said, on my bike ride, I'd see Brad out there walking. I'd see him out there walking every other game or something. And just like, should I wave to him or not wave to him? <laughs> you, know? <laughs> you know, so it's, it's kind of, it was just kind of weird that way. But, you know, everybody was going through it. So there's no, there's certainly no excuses. It just was uncomfortable. The amount of time that teams had to spend with each other, um, I was surprised there wasn't more. There was a lot made of, you know, Marcus Smart in the, Miami series going in the locker room kind of blowing up with some teammates they were down 2-0 and and that kind of thing happens all the time in the postseason it really does it just happened that people could hear it in the hallway and you know sometimes as a reporter you hear about it after that's normal I actually was surprised and I know that I'm sure there are plenty of things going on that we didn't find out about and didn't report on but I thought there would be more guys just so tired of each other and so at nerve's end, especially as the environment and the intensity of the environment heightened with what was happening outside the bubble too, that there wasn't more of that in there. And that guys were just so sick of each other and seeing each other and being around, even if you're on the road together in the playoffs, like you all can go to different places for dinner. You can all, you don't have to be around everybody all the time. And then when you're home, you go to practice, you do your treatment, and then you go home. There was no leaving each other in the bubble. I it was. Um, I thought the players handled it all in all better than 
I don't know. I would have if you put me on top of everybody I work with all the time. Yeah, I agree with you. I think they probably handle it better than they did out, do outside the bubble, you know, to your point that you're, that you're making. And I think, well, the only thing I'd come up with, my, my opinion on it would be there was a lot of the other stresses taken out of it being in the bubble, travel, the late nights, um, dealing with tickets, dealing with, you know, you know, whatever, just a lot of interactions that, that cause a little, you know, more um, tiredness through a day. And I think the tiredness is what they always, what always gets everybody in the end. That's where, you know, guys are cranky and that's when they have those, uh, right. they have those bust ups or dust ups or whatever they are. So I don't know. There was, there was, uh, I think that, I think, um, the, the ability for guys to recuperate and get a lot of rest, I think has, has helped the level of play, even, the, even under strange circumstances. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Nick, you mentioned March 11th and the day that the league uh, shut down and the uncertainty that came after it. March 11th, you were in Toronto at that Hotel X where I remember seeing you at Masai Ujiri's uh, uh, Mandela 100th anniversary event a couple years ago. And the Nick Nurse Foundation was having an evening, right? And and what you and to fast forward it today, you are announcing you 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 guys have announced or are announcing that Julius Irving is going to be on your board of directors, which I want to hear more about. But the Nick Nurse Foundation that night was having an event when you got the news. Tell me. First, I want to hear more about Dr. J being a part of this now and what the foundation does. But I would imagine that that March 11th moment stays with with everybody and being in that environment, I'm sure even amplified it more for you. Yeah, it was it was our kickoff night of the of the Nick Nurse Foundation, Woj. And it was it was fun. It was we had um, music is a big part of what the foundation does, providing opportunities um, for kids to, to learn and play music. And it was a night of music. We had, um, several artists there, John Vinyl. We had, a uh, Daniel Caesar award winner and we had the Arkells, uh, as kind of the headliner. And, and, um, you guys know, I dabble and play a couple things. I played four or five songs with them as, as the close of the thing, but you're right. It was, uh, about nine 30, the, 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 Myself and the Arkells were just about ready to take the stage, and uh, the texts come across that that Rudy Gobert tested positive, and everybody was like, "Well, what do we do?" And and um, I said, "Well, we're going to go knock out these four or five songs here real <laughs> quick, and then we're gonna then we're gonna figure it out." And you know, just to, and but you're right; it was a memorable. Like everybody still saying, you know, the last night we really did anything was that March 11th yeah. at your at your foundation night. So. Um, anyway, we got it kicked off. We raised a bunch of money. You mentioned, uh, Dr. J has joined us and that's, that's awesome. Um, just met him. My, one of my high school teammates, a guy by the name of Frank Moloch knows, knows the doc and, <laughs> and, um, and put us together and we went to dinner in Atlanta a while back and just stayed in touch. And, 
um, I'm excited. I mean, geez, what a what a legendary guy and and uh, player, obviously, you know, an internationally known um, guy. And um, we're excited. We're just trying to build this foundation out and make it as as good as we can be. I think that's a tremendous addition for it. Uh, so we got a doctor and a nurse on the Nick Nurse Foundation. <laughs> we're, Very good. We're off it, and running. Yeah, we're and it's, running. it's just what you guys talked about when you were playing high school basketball in <laughs> Iowa. I'm going to coach. I'm going to win an NBA championship yeah. as a coach, and then someday you're going to introduce me to Dr. J. That's what you talked about on the bus rides through – yeah. Through Iowa? Yeah, through uh, Arcadia, Iowa. Frank Molak, my friends from Arcadia, Iowa, population 350. And it's, it's nine miles away from Carroll, where I'm from, population 10,000. We were on the rides back and forth to his house. We were talking about that. It's like it's like uh, I had another buddy of mine um, who was at game six in, in um, Golden State when we won it last year. And he, he was right there. And, and uh, he goes, do you realize you just you just were on the on the – TV with Kevin McHale, Isaiah Thomas, and Grant Hill interviewing you, man. He's like, <laughs> like it kind of hits home, man. Yeah, it's home. Uh, well, that's that theme is a big part of of your book. Again, the title is Rapture: Fifteen Teams, Four Countries, One NBA Championship, and How to Win Damn Near Anywhere. Um, books available um, probably online. I don't know if where there are bookstores open obviously easier to get everything uh that way now but uh i've read a a good deal of it i just got a copy yesterday last night and so i went through and it's a great read your co-author michael sokolov is a great writer somebody who i've read uh, i mentioned to you before we went on his pete rose book years ago he's really um an accomplished writer and i thought he captured your voice and knowing you um it's it's a great window into your career and and how you look at coaching and the profession. One thing I want to ask you about, which I thought was, and you talked a little bit about this, but you got into it at length in there, and you talk about riding around. There's a scene in the book uh, where you, that you're telling about going to visit Phil Jackson uh, in Montana and spinning cherry pits out the window. Of, of a pickup truck, again, just like you always imagined you would do with Phil Jackson someday. Uh, how did you end up with Phil Jackson? And you, as you describe in there, you went and spent really three full days with him out uh, in the Hinderlands. Uh, what was that like? What, what did you learn with him? Yeah, f- first of all, Alex McKechnie, our director of sports science, worked for Phil um, as the Lakers. Literally the day I got the head coaching job, Alex sauntered into the office and says, hey, you want to want to go meet Phil? And I said, heck yes, I do. And um, swapped it out, got it set up. I flew into Montana. I didn't really know uh, if we were going for a cup of coffee, Woj, or if I was staying, you know, what, what we were really doing. Uh, I booked a few days. I had been on kind of a nonstop whirlwind since I got the head coaching job. I figured if we were just going for a one-hour cup of coffee, I'd stay there a couple days in beautiful Montana and, and recharge a little bit. But um, yeah, we, we met at a coffee shop. We have coffee for about an hour and a half or so. He says, hey, jump in my truck. We get in his truck. He goes down the road about a half a mile. It's it's cherry season. He pulls over, grabs his, grabs his big-ass bag of cherries and throw, throws them in the middle of us, and he rolls down the windows, and and we start driving through through the area of Montana, and he's pretty much given me a history lesson of the area and how he spent time there as a kid. We're, we're uh, 
eating cherries and spitting the seeds out the window. And, and just like you think I'm, I'm, you know, I'm like shaking my head to myself thinking, uh, this is, this is unbelievable. And really the connection for me, Woj started, um, uh, when I was back in England, I, I was, I was went there in 95. This is pre-internet and where you could just grab any game you want online or whatever. And I was searching for basketball to study because I was a young 26, 27 year old coach, whatever I was. And, and I found a place that would send me, uh, VHS tapes. And, um, I ordered the Chicago bulls. My team was running the triangle offense. Um, I was trying to study that and run this and, and I ended up watching these tapes like each game 20 times. There was no other basketball to watch. And I was just over and over in my hotel room I was living in at the time and ended up like Phil kind of was my mentor without, he didn't really know it, but (laughs) I'm just studying everything he's doing and and we're running the offense of that. So it was really special for me to be able to kind of tell him that, you know, for four or five years when I was coaching in England, I really watched like every game he coached and I was really studying the offense and we ran it for about eight or nine years. Um, So it was kind of, I don't know, I didn't really answer your question about what I learned from him, but I learned a great deal um, in those years. And then when I was out there, he he gave me, a, you know, a lot of the spiritual stuff, man, the basketball gods, the the making the decision, best decisions for the team. You know, that's what you've been hired to do. You know, a lot, a lot of stuff like that. And, and you said you really did go into the triangle. I mean, it wasn't what you're going to be running in Toronto it's it you didn't really spend it was more of everything for all the time you spent watching the triangle studying it 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 wasn't a big part of that conversation right those three days no not not at all not at all really i I mean there was a little bit but not not much um i would say from a from a tactical standpoint the one thing that stuck with me is he kept talking about pressure defense like like ball pressure full court pressure and you know, and they played with the Knicks, how they used to full court press man to man and all this stuff. And, and it was good because it, it was a good kind of reemphasis. I mean, I kind of believe in that myself as, as you've, you know, watched our teams play. It was a good, good reemphasis and re um, good to hear him talk about how, how important it was, you know. And, and there's some things, I mean, on the surface, you know, the most basic difference in your backgrounds, he played in the NBA. Uh, you didn't play in the NBA, but there was a lot in common growing up in, you know, very rural areas, going um, to coach in the minor leagues. And both of you at different points before you got to the NBA or, or even for in your case, the D League, um, thinking about giving it up and just going to do something else. Those are a few parallels you felt with with him. Yeah. Yeah. I think I think. Um, yeah. I, and I think that intrigued me when I was watching those tapes in England or when I was reading his books and about his life. And, you know, you did, you did strike some like um, commonalities there that, I don't know, maybe it keeps you going. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, maybe it keeps you going, you know, you, I don't know if you're verbalizing that to anybody you're saying, you know, I'm going to be, you, you never, you're never saying that, but you're maybe internalizing that a little bit or whatever. And, and, um, I think, I think there's a love of coaching there. You know, he, he's going to Puerto Rico. I'm going to England or Belgium or whatever. Um, I love the minor leagues, you know, and he, he, he loved coaching in the minor league. And I, I loved it too. It's just, there's, there's something gritty and, and special about those players. And when they do make it, it's such a, it's such a, 
I don't know, celebration of coaching, really. That, that, that's what you do it for, you know, things like that. Um, I don't know what else to say about that, really. One thing, too, you got into in, in the book, Nick, is the idea that once you get to the NBA, unlike any other level of coaching and playing, that in a lot of ways the head coach is proving himself more to the players than the other way around, which is how it is in the minor leagues or Europe or even college basketball. Um, I, I never quite heard it put that way, but boy, it's exactly right. Yeah, I, I can, boy, Woj, I, I, my first time, this was more even as an assistant when I, my first time I walked up in front of the, the team to give a scouting report as my first, when I was, you know, seven years ago as an assistant coach, I, I can't tell you how nervous I was, you know, because it was, it was uh, rightly or wrongly so. I was thinking they were looking at me like, "Who the hell is this minor league guy?" Mm-hmm. You know, up here, and but I was kind of used to it. Even when I got in front of my D league teams, most of the guys were like, "Who the hell is this guy?" <laughs> you, know? <laughs> you know, but 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 it is. You're under the gun. Um, they want you know they want to be coached. Well, I always say that, but they want to they want to know that you know what you're doing and that you're going to put them a game plan out there that they can they can win with and they can succeed with both, both individually and as a team. And um, that's cause for some nervous feelings at the beginning sometimes. Yeah. There's a great moment in your first season as head coach, mid November, you've lost three straight games. You're in Boston, you're in the film room. And some of the guys in the room are talking about the team's passing and how the ball was moving. And all of a sudden there comes a voice in the room that you guys had not heard much from yet that season. T- tell that story, Nick. Yeah, we were, we were talking about, um, you know, moving the ball, getting a little bit more ball movement. You know, I think that rolls off everybody's tongue all the time really easily, both coaches, players, media, fans, whatever, you know, boy, why don't they move the ball more? Or we should move the ball. And, and it was getting a lot of momentum, especially from the second unit guys and the guy, you know, around and, and uh, the meeting was kind of picking up some momentum very strongly. And they were talking about, yeah, well, sometimes we just need to pass it for the hell of it, you know, and, and uh, just to move it, just to circulate it, you know, all those, all those words that we use. And, and uh, Kawhi held up his hand and said, uh, I, I can't really say this on air, but he, he said, I ain't passing for the bleep and hell of it. Or whatever. <laughs> he said, I'm not passing for the hell of it. And uh, he said, my job's to score and then to draw double and triple teams. And when I do, then it's your job to score. And that's, and, and it was very well-timed and very well said by him and um, important. Because he didn't, when he, it was, in a lot of ways, it's the old EF Hutton commercial, right? With him. Um, yeah, exactly. it, like, I think people suspect that's what it's like with him, but that's how it really is. A hundred percent. Yeah. Right? Hundred percent. He he hadn't said much yet. He was still uh, finding his feet and wondering about me as a coach, wondering about his teammates, wondering about some things. And um, you know, we were off to a pretty good start, though. You know, but but still, when we were in this, it's kind of the first team meeting. It was a first little bit of little bit of angst because we lost a couple in a row and and all that kind of stuff. And um, he spoke up and it really was everybody, everybody else in the whole film room looked up like, boy, we didn't, we didn't, we haven't heard that voice too much. <laughs> and then uh, you could have heard a pin drop while he was speaking. And then when he delivered, he delivered a haymaker line there. 
right? Yeah. So that was that was that was uh, again followed by a lot of silence of uh, he's exactly right, and there's really nothing much more to say, <laughs> you know, end of meeting type of thing, right? The the juxtaposition of Kawhi and Kyle Lowry, one guy who never talks unless he's got something profound he wants to share. And then there's Kyle who never stops talking all the time, right? It's it's an interesting it was interesting it had to be an interesting pairing um with those two together in that way. For sure, for sure. I mean, um Kyle is what you know, Kyle, first of all, you know, you, you sometimes like he leads by example, there's no question. The guy plays hard, right? But he's also a vocal leader. You know, sometimes people say, "Well, he leads by example," which means he never says anything, right? But but Kyle does lead by example and says quite a bit. Um, but you know, geez, and it, and it ended up being a great pairing, but, but as you know, um, I'm not sure they really knew each other. Like who knew Kawhi? Like, you know, like I started coaching him. I'd never spoken to him before until we traded for him, you know? Um, and I think they, once they got to know each other as the season went on, uh, tremendous amount of respect both ways back and forth for those guys, even though they go about their leaders, you know, definitely the two leaders of the team and they go about their leadership um, responsibilities a little bit differently. One thing that I thought, especially for, I think probably coaches at any level, maybe you have more leeway in this, perhaps at a lower level or, or a different level. I, I, you, you had a line in the book where you said that you've got six bullets to fire during a season. And, and essentially you better use them pretty wisely and not waste them and use them on the most important things. What did that mean? That that was something I think going into your first season as head coach, you thought. Did you did it turn out to be true? Are there actually more? Are there less? What what did you learn about that coaching now two full seasons as a head coach in the NBA? Yeah, I think um, it was less than that. But but again, we had a good team, right? I think we had a we had a good team. So there was a lot of um, there were a lot of moments where maybe you would have you know, got on them a little bit, but you kind of had a feeling things were going to be okay next time the ball went up. So you just kind of saved it. And, and I, and I was, I was really trying to save a lot of things for the, for the postseason too. Woj. I was really letting my assistants coach and, and I was kind of sitting back waiting so that again, I, I, I think again, in the book, you're going to, you're going to see a, you know, my, I do, I do think my voice is a finite resource during a season. So I try to, you know, I try to, try to save it and use it for when it's most impactful. And I think that six bullets thing is, is, you know, you can't be firing them all the time or they don't, they don't listen. Right. I I remember Steve Clifford telling me a story about um, Jeff Van Gundy told him Steve Clifford had just gotten the division two job at Adelphi and Jeff was coaching the Knicks and he went and went to meet Jeff to sit down with him. He figured out a way to get an audience with him. Obviously Jeff ended up hiring him with the Knicks but Jeff told them something that always stayed with Steve Clifford, which is, as a head coach, don't ever, essentially, when you have something to say to the team, it has got to be meaningful. And it can't be in practice, hey, let's play hard. Let's, like, like when you say something, um, like to have any impact, it's, it's you really got to pick your spots. And if you're just talking all the time and telling them everything's important, um, nothing's going to be important, right? It, like you, you learn that probably, I would imagine that might be the case at almost any level. Yeah, I think too, I, the NBA for me, Woj, is, is um, 
well, when I first got in it as an assistant seven years ago, I couldn't believe the pace. Couldn't believe that the games came and you got on a plane and then another game came and you got on a plane. I mean, it was like, and and I think that that the sheer quantity of work that's going on lends itself to you. You better pick your moments. I mean, you can't be, you just can't be giving them tons of feedback constantly because there's so many games and there's and they're happening quickly and the next one one's here and the next one's coming soon. Um, but again, I, I really believe in letting the players play a little bit. I believe in letting my staff coach a little bit as well, right? You know, so I I, I, I like to sit back and hopefully hopefully every under, everybody understands the vision, which is closely tied to the plan, and it's being executed. And you can only step in when you don't think it's being executed, right? To have a job, Nick, like the Toronto Raptors, where – you walk in the door, and the goal is to win a championship. They made you head coach because that was there was really one step left to take, and that's pretty rare in the profession. Usually, you could probably make the case somebody with your background, non-ex-player, a lot of minor leagues, then assistant G League, uh, you're probably going to get a bad team. You Typically, your first job is going to be a bad team. Uh, just the opposite for you. And not only do you get a good team, you win a championship, you you go to the cusp of the conference finals again, you are set up with Pascal Siakam signed long-term with Kyle still playing at a high level with, you know, the hope of certainly re-signing Fred Van Vliet, who's a free agent. I know Masai has made it clear that that's a priority to keep him in Toronto. Um, do, do, you, do, you, do you ever stop and think about just all the great coaches, guys you know that are really, really good coaches that you've competed with or that who get a job and you go, you can kind of look at them and go, with that roster, good luck surviving three years, right? And this organization just plows through coaches year after year. Um, how much do you think about that when you're able to step back and and uh, to have that kind of an opportunity and that kind of an organization with Masai? and say, wow, boy, th- this worked out. Yeah, I mean, listen, Woj, there's no doubt about it. I, I think about that often, about how, you know, um, well, grateful I am that I was kind of – listen, I love it here too, right? You get you, you, you skipped a bunch of stuff. Not only is our team great and Masai's great and our ownership – I mean, there's a lot of ownership, but Toronto is a fabulous place to live. Um, the ride that, that we took the country on – on the way to that championship and like how many millions of basketball fans we created in literally two series. You know, I think, I think, I think half the country was watching and the other half started once we got to the conference finals and, and fell in love with the team and the sport. So there's, there's so much, yeah, there's so much to be, I tell everybody this all the time that this place is unique. It's always been unique, but it's like a really good unique and it continues to be, um, because of that. So I don't know. I'm, I'm, I'm kind of an international guy. I've lived in a few countries and, and um, I, I kind of like the spirit of the cultural diversity here in Toronto. I like the, the spirit of cultural diversity in our organization, our staff, um, the team. Yeah. But I'm, I'm, I'm lucky. And I, I try not to, I hope, I hope I don't uh, forget that very often that how, how fortunate I was to be given such a good team and a good job. How much, Nick, and listen, 
you, you got used to it in the bubble, which was playing without fans and playing in an empty building. And, you know, listen, there's a lot of great environments in the NBA. There are a lot of them. Uh, Toronto is at the very top. And especially with what you've experienced the last couple of years there, uh, it was electric to go to a game there and to uh, go outside and see tens of thousands of people packed together outside your arena. And like, there's going to be this process of when can there be fans in an arena again and how many can you have in there? But you think about outside of your arena and you go, when would we ever, when could we ever see that again? How long is that away again? And it's an environment I think everybody wants to get back to in the league, but there's just so much uncertainty about when it's ever going to feel like that again or look like that again. Yeah. I think, you know, people asked me about the, you know, game seven, Boston, it should have been at home. Did that, was that a big factor? Um, but uh, yeah, yeah. Okay. Maybe. But what the factor is, is like you just said, the, the electricity that an energy and positivity that a city feels when there's a game seven thumping in town coming up, you know, for, for, for the days leading up to it, the day of it, the, everybody in the streets, the, you know, it, it's, it, that's what was a factor. Mm-hmm. Like we, we were all under the same conditions in the bubble, but, but I'm saying that, you know, the, 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 the people of this city and this country missed that energy and electricity and whatever. Um, that's, what's the biggest shame I think, but uh, I don't know. I think we're a long ways away from getting back to that. Woj. I, 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 I think like you and me and everybody else. And I think just the, the, the casual Raptors fan is longing for that because even when you're watching it on TV, you know, you see a shot of everybody outside, you know, having a dancing in the streets is, 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 is uplifting for everybody that's even sitting in their living room apartment or wherever yeah. to see it. So, I mean, it's funny. You think about like, I was thinking about Doncic, Luka Doncic's shot to beat the Clippers in the bubble for Dallas. And it wasn't an elimination game and it didn't decide a series. Um, but it was probably as dramatic of a final second playoff shot as, you know, we had seen certainly since Kawhi's last year against Philly. And just think of how different that Luka shot would have looked um, in an arena with fans. And the, the Kawhi shot, what made it was, yeah, the ball bouncing on the rim but how he gets enveloped by the fans there in the corner and the reaction. And boy, it is a, it is a profound difference in how you even remember a moment. Well, for sure. It's like uh, the picture of Kawhi down and the ball going through and, and you're just in your, well, I have many times you're scanning through the crowd and you're looking for people, you know, and seeing what they were doing and, and, uh, you know, my, my, my son Leo missed it. He was looking the other way, but he, he's only he's only three. We'll forgive him for that. But uh, you know, you so there's 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 you know that's the magic, right? Woj of sports when you when you see you know it's like it's like Jordan when he hit that shot in Utah and the crowd and you know just all that stuff that that that's history, right? That that's what history that those those shots and those pictures you know freeze a moment in time. Yeah, it sure does. Uh... Nick, congratulations on your foundation. You guys, I know you're doing great work with it. Uh, the Nick Nurse Foundation, you can find it online. Is it, It's nicknursefoundation.org. That's it, yeah. Right, Nick, yep. nicknursefoundation.org. You can see the work they're doing and 
a teacher in the Toronto area who, a music teacher who you guys got on Zoom with and and let her know that she was going to get $25,000 worth of musical equipment. And her reaction is pretty, uh, pretty awesome. And, and then the release uh, of your new book, Rapture, 15 Teams, Four Countries, One NBA Championship, and How to Win Damn Near Anywhere. That is out. That is probably about as long of a title, Nick, as I've seen anybody fit on a cover. So good work with that. Uh, but the book's a lot of fun. I've enjoyed it. I'm, I'm looking forward to finishing it. Uh, there's a lot to, uh, I think for Raptor fans, NBA fans, um, broader, it's, it's, it's about a lot more than just one team and one coach. Um, so thanks for taking time out, Nick. It's always uh, great to be with you, man. Thanks a lot. Woj. really enjoyed it. Always fun. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Woj pod. A big thank you to our guest. Toronto Raptors coach Nick Nurse. You can listen to new and archived episodes of the Woj Pod wherever you get your podcasts. And be sure also to listen to The Low Post with Zach Lowe and The Hoop Collective with Brian Windhorst. We'll catch you soon. And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Call 1-800-DIRECTV. Claim based on total games carried on sports networks. Sports availability varies by zip code and requires choice package. Terms or restrictions apply.